From CITI Program, I'm Darren Gaddis, and this is On Campus. Today, what is the Cleary Act and how does it overlap with Title IX? What students, faculty, and staff need to know? And emerging challenges as we transition back to campus. I spoke with Amber Grove, the Director of Title IX and Cleary Compliance at University of North Carolina, Wilmington, on the intersection between Title IX and the Cleary Act. As a reminder, this podcast is for educational purposes only. It is not intended to provide legal advice or guidance. You should consult with your organization's attorneys if you have questions or concerns about relevant laws and regulations discussed in this podcast. Additionally, the views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the presenter. Amber, thank you for joining us by phone today. Thank you so much for having me today, Darren. You are actually currently on campus at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. Is that correct? I am. These past few months, we have discussed campus safety and compliance. Could you explain to us what is the Cleary Act and how does it overlap with Title IX? I think most people don't realize how much the Cleary Act overlaps with Title IX. So the Cleary Act has been around for a long time at this point, a a few decades, and really since its inception had information that dealt with sexual misconduct-related policies and processes. I mean, there's a heavy focus in Cleary on risk reduction and safety planning, safety measures for campuses. And so one of those sort of narrow focuses was upon the Violence Against Women Act crimes, so sexual assault, dating violence, domestic violence, and stalking. Those are sort of the big four. And when we look at Title IX, those are central components or central things that we would deal with jurisdictionally for Title IX. So a really neat intersection there. Um, Essentially, the Cleary Act requires that we have policies and procedures in place to support victims of those VAWA offenses and that we publicize them for our campus communities. Those need to be applicable to all of our students, faculty, and staff. And so the nice thing about that requirement is that it's been really stable for the last several decades. So where we have Title IX sort of ebbing and flowing in some different directions with different administrations, those requirements for Cleary have remained very stable. And so as a result, uh, institutions have had to implement grievance procedures to help deal with incidents of sexual misconduct on campuses when they have sort of geographic and or jurisdiction over the people involved themselves. The other component to Cleary, which extends a little beyond Title IX jurisdictional key, is that element of support for victims, even if we can't implement a grievance policy because people aren't affiliated with the institution, for example. So if we have a student victim or a staff victim and their spouse is a non-affiliate, that doesn't mean we can't provide them with our campus supports. So that's one piece of Cleary that sort of extends beyond Title IX, still helps support in the same subject matter area, but 
it extends it and makes sure that we are enabling people to continue with their education or continue with work uninterrupted and supported, at least to the extent possible. Is there a difference between Clery Act and Title IX crimes? Yes. It seems like there may not be when you read the new Title IX regulations because they have said a Title IX violation is a VAWA crime, essentially. That's the third category in the regulations. However, there are jurisdictional differences between the Clery Act and Title IX. So Clery requires that you have a grievance policy and procedure in place for incidences of sexual misconduct. Um, And really, there is a focus geographically on things that happen on our campus for the purposes of crime stat reporting, but not necessarily for the purposes of our grievance policies and procedures. So theoretically, under the Clery Act, you could still assume jurisdiction of incidences that happen off of your jurisdiction as long as you have jurisdiction over the two individuals involved. Title IX has narrowed their focus. So if you look at the new regulations from 2020 for Title IX, it requires that an incident of VAWA crime happen either in the educational program or activity uh, and involve individuals that were trying to engage in that program or activity. So if you arguably have an off-campus situation, it could involve two students, but if there's no ability to tie that to your educational program or activity, there's not much you can do about it under strictly Title IX. How do you communicate the differences between the Clery Act and Title IX to your campus community? So a lot of this depends on how you classify mandatory reporters on your campus. Title IX has really rolled back who would be considered somebody to have notice on behalf of the institution. The Clery Act has a pretty lengthy list of who would be considered a campus security authority and therefore someone that would need to report a Title IX or VAWA-related incident. If you are, if you choose to be expansive under the Clery Act um, and Title IX, because you can make that choice, then you, uh, by and large, can make the message pretty consistent for your faculty, staff, and students. You can essentially let them know that if there's any incident of sexual misconduct, your expectation is that non-confidential staff report that. Um, and you indicate what your reporting mechanism is. Typically now we see a lot of online reporting forms. And, you know, delineating geography and those other pieces becomes unnecessary at that point if you have a wide swath of campus security authorities who are also mandatory reporters. If you choose to dial back to some extent who is a Title IX mandatory reporter uh, and then who would be required to report under the Clery Act as a campus security authority, then you're going to have to get a little bit more nuanced with the individuals on your campus so they realize what their reporting obligations are and in what circumstances. I think that this is often a little bit beyond what you're able to convey in a perhaps hour-long training, which is frequently what you may have time for for your campus security authorities, for example. And so this is where I think supplemental materials become 
really necessary and helpful to support those who are required to report sexual misconduct incidences. But my preference is to really keep a wide swath so that way you can provide supportive resources for your campus community. As I mentioned earlier with the Clery Act, you can take jurisdiction over things that have happened off campus, for example. You can potentially have some wider grievance policies. But even if you don't have a wider grievance policy, the Clery Act still requires that you provide at least resourcing and support for those who are impacted by sexual misconduct. So as a result, I operate under the assumption that it's better to get more of that information because even if we don't have jurisdiction, we still should be providing supportive resources to those that are impacted by what are really challenging circumstances. Have you seen any challenges with the Clery Act and Title IX due to the transition to more hybrid and online learning options for students? Yeah, I think one of the chief things that has really occurred to me is that we typically had a lot of different opportunities to engage with our campus so they knew and were familiar with the resources before something happened. We have a really great online and hybrid orientation program that we've been offering to our students, faculty, and staff. And I certainly don't begrudge that because I know a lot of work went into it, but there is something that you miss when you're not able to be in front of those populations and making the connections uh, and establishing the rapport before someone hits a mode of crisis. So I do think that piece is one pretty significant hurdle that's come up as we have been navigating the pandemic. I will be curious to see our upcoming um, campus climate survey that we do. We do our campus climate survey in the even years, so we'll be doing it in 2022. And part of that climate survey is figuring out whether or not students know their resources and what their comfort level would be with reaching out to those resources. I suspect that we'll see a probably pretty significant drop in that comfort level and awareness because we haven't had that same connection we've had previously in orientation and, frankly, other programming as well. The other piece, I think, is we've seen a fair number of reports come in for online-related incidences, but a lot of them have been from faculty who have experienced some things through their Zoom on their classes. I think students have experienced some of these same issues, but I think it's easier for people to minimize those types of situations compared to perhaps experiencing some of these things in person. So I think the other thing that we have seen a decline in is people seeking out resources because Sometimes they're minimizing some of the um, things that they're dealing with in their Zoom environment. And then I think the last piece is we haven't fully seen this yet, but I think by all indicators, we certainly will. When we have moments of crisis where people are confined to the home environment, there is often an increase in domestic-related violence. It is infrequent that they will seek out resourcing while they are still stuck with that, within that confinement. And so I don't think we've fully seen the repercussions of that yet, but I do expect that as things continue to loosen up and people 
are able to leave their home environment, that we're going to see a significant number of domestic violence-related issues that we'll have to to deal with. Um, and it will be a significant enough wave that I think it could strain some campuses' resources. What else do we need to know? One of the primary pieces that I think we're going to need to be cognizant of and take some time to do is that reconnection with our campus community. So re-engaging with them, informing them again, reminding them again of what our grievance policies and procedures are, who can help support them, where they can go to report things, and the like. Because I think some of that connective piece has sort of fallen off the map. Part of it's just because of a natural focus, I think, on on COVID compliance, right? And And keeping people up to date on the things that we're doing as a campus to address that COVID-related emergency and keep them up to speed on that. So I think re-engaging on these issue areas is going to be a primary initial driver to realign compliance. I also think we're going to need to spend some time with our campus security authorities and our mandatory reporters to reconnect them to their obligations to file reports. The fact that we haven't had students, you know, perhaps popping by a faculty member's office hours as frequently um, has probably diminished some of those interactions where we have had disclosures before. So, you know, when you don't have practice, you get a little rusty. And so I think the other piece is connecting with our faculty, staff, and administrators to remind them of those obligations. So that way we are getting the reports in that we need to get in. So we're compliant from that direction. Um, But also so that way we are able to provide support, provide resources to those that are impacted by those types of incidences. I then think the last piece is COVID-related compliance. So we've been allowed to have a centralized website with COVID information for our our campuses and not required to necessarily send out a a timely warning or, well, it would be an emergency notification, excuse me. So we wouldn't have to send out an emergency notification for every new cluster, for example, once we establish that as an institution, we have a website. That may have been functional whenever we had students remote, but now that we have more and more students on campus, though it's technically compliant, it may not be the best course of action to enable our students to make good decision about their safety. And so I think the last piece is related to COVID is thinking about is our notification method that we established when we had more people remote still effective? Or do we need to be doing more to enable our campus community to make adequate decisions about their safety? Amber, thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me today, Darren. Be sure to follow, like, and subscribe to On Campus with CITI program to stay in the know. I also invite you to review our content offerings regularly as we are continually adding new courses and webinars that may be of interest to you. All of our content is available to you anytime through organizational and individual subscriptions. You may also be interested in CITI Program's Essentials of Research Administration course. Please visit the CITI Program's website 
to learn more about all of our offerings.